You've heard the words leadership and management used on this show many times, yet what's the distinction between the two, and how do you get them to work in tandem to serve you and, more importantly, the people around you and your organization? On today's show, one of the top leadership experts in the world, John Cotter, on that distinction and much more. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 249. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions to help you develop your leadership skills. And welcome back if you tune in regularly. If you're tuning in for the first time, I am so glad that you chose this episode to tune in on because I'm really pleased to welcome today uh, someone I consider to be one of the world's experts in leadership and particularly in how leaders handle change and how leaders lead through change. And that person is John Cotter, who is with us today. John is Professor Emeritus at the Harvard Business School and a New York Times bestselling author. He is often called the world's foremost authority on leadership and change. His many previous books, including Leading Change and Our Iceberg is Melting, have been translated into more than 200 foreign language editions and have been bestsellers around the world. He is a founder of Cotter International, a consulting firm that specializes in helping leaders transform their organizations. And on a personal note, I've taught graduate courses using John's books before, and his book, Leading Change, is one of the books on my list of top 10 reads for leaders that many of you know and have heard me recommend before. And he's here today to discuss the principles in his new book, That's Not How We Do It Here. John, welcome to Coaching for Leaders. Well, thank you, Dave. I, I love your uh, generous intro. I, I should have recorded it myself. <laughs> well, I am just really thrilled to talk to you. You know, I was mentioning to you before we started recording that when I was doing my doctoral work, I used your model as part of my process, not only in my comprehensive exams for my academic work, but also in navigating some of the business leadership challenges I was dealing with at the time. And it's been very, very helpful to me. And I've seen it been very helpful to many others out there. And and so I'm really glad to bring your wisdom here to the show. And uh, you know, speaking of this new book, I, I've seen you in the in the intervening time between leading change and our iceberg is melting coming out, that you've written very passionately about how a lot of people in organizations and even those who reach out to you for uh, consulting and advice, don't necessarily appreciate the distinction between leadership and management. And I'm curious if that prompted some of the writing of this book, because I noticed that's featured pretty prominently, or, or maybe if it was something else. Well, one of the uh, senior uh, consultants that works for Cotter International came to me uh, a couple of years ago and said that he was convinced from uh, working with our clients that one of the things that got in their way and that made it more difficult for them to get off to a fast start with us in trying to help them make some kind of a large-scale change was the incredible confusion around something that he was convinced was very, very, very basic, and that is what leadership is and what management is, 
it's almost like those are pillars upon which a lot of the other discoveries that we've made along the years and uh, the processes that I've written about are built. And he was saying that he had gone back in some of the actual um, work he's doing with senior management teams and put a little segment right up front about management and leadership and was saying it helps. Hence, he went to, why don't we why don't we write a book about that? And he was the same chap that uh, Holger Rathgeber, who wrote another fable with me, Our Iceberg is Melding, which turned out to, I mean, it was unbelievable, the email that we got on that from around the world, huge, gigantic bestseller with lots of people saying it really helped. So he said, let's try another fable. And we did. And it was great fun. Well, I'm, I'm looking through the book and you've zeroed in on meerkats for this fable. And so I'm, it just makes me smile looking at the pictures. And uh, one of the things I really liked about Our Iceberg is Melting is how you took the what was more the professional academic version and leading change and made it really accessible for people. And I found that that fable is really helpful for the, the story format really resonates with a lot of people and they, they find that they're able to they're able to see not only themselves, but also the other people in the organization in the characters that are there. Yeah. Somebody literally an hour ago came into my office here and said, Amazon, they've already got a couple of reviews. I was scanning over it. One of the comments again is, as you read through this, the reviewer was saying, it just constantly gets you thinking about your own organization, your own work group. Um, And that's part of the, the power of fables, at least if they're done reasonably well, is even though they're about, you know, talking animals, which is pretty strange, they draw you easily into thinking about your own world and often with a less, a little bit more insight because they're approaching it from a distance and because it makes you smile like the pictures of the meerkats, maybe with a little more open-mindedness and a little less defensiveness, all of which, of course, is very helpful. Well, speaking of things that are helpful, I know that this is a distinction that many of us who do this kind of work do think about is the distinction between management and leadership. And I I think you've articulated this beautifully in the book, and I've seen you do this in writing before. I'm wondering if you could, for those who maybe have not thought about this distinction much, either the words, either the definitions themselves, but also in practice, what's different. What are the key elements of the differences between leadership and management that we really do need to understand and appreciate? Well, the most important thing to recognize is they're designed to achieve different things. And once you get that insight, I think it helps a lot. And management is designed to take a system of people and technologies of some, it doesn't matter what the scale is, you know, 10,000, 100,000 people and make the thing actually function reliably and efficiently day after day after day. You have five people in that stuff to do, (laughs) as opposed to 500 or 5,000 or whatever. And yet what we've invented basically in the last 100 years, it did not exist before that, is this modern management, ways of putting together operating plans for a year and budgets, ways of putting together uh, hierarchical structures that are designed to implement those plans, 
job descriptions, uh, actually staffing those jobs with people who have the right skills, and as a result, to make something that's not natural actually happen, which is keep all of us actually accomplishing what we uh, do, getting the work done day after day, week after week. Leadership is much more designed to help us change, not just do what we know how to do, help us leap into the future, and no matter how much is being turbulent or unknown or changing around us. It's all about basically challenging the status quo, looking for what's happening out there, coming up with some kind of a, of a vision of the opportunities that are available given what is happening out there, getting people to understand that, not just a few people on the executive committee, but larger groups of people to understand and to, uh, more than understand, to actually buy into it, and then creating an environment around where people feel empowered and uh, feel motivated and, and feel inspired to take their kind of aligned buy-in around some vision and make it happen no matter the obstacles. And as a result, to create brand new things, innovation, to create a future that might be very different than the present. So different purposes, different actions associated with those purposes, and Increasingly, in organizations of any size, both are important. And it's not just a matter of a few people on top handling all the leadership stuff and a bunch of people in the middle handling the management stuff and, and giga numbers at the bottom doing neither. What you're finding in the most successful firms around the world is that indeed the guys on top spend a little bit more time on leadership than the others, but they also manage and they do technical things. And the guys in the middle may spend a little bit more time on management stuff than any other group, but increasingly they're being asked to provide leadership on various initiatives and projects, and they also do some technical stuff. And the guys on the bottom even are being asked, or at least the door is being opened for them if they want to, to step in and help provide leadership on initiatives. So two very different processes creating very different results, both of which are needed. And of course, the problem being that most organizations have at least, you know, kind of, uh, if you're going to grade it, a B management system, sometimes it's A or A+. Plus, but there's not much of that leadership system. And that's not a knock on just the, the CEO. It means throughout the organization, they don't have enough people providing enough leadership to be able to help them kind of innovate and, and leap into the future to their peril. Yeah. And one of the interesting things that I've noticed in the dynamic of just business dialogue and conversation and even books out now is this notion, and there's a whole lot of cliches I see online and in books on the notion that uh, management is bad and leadership is good. And and the, the description you've just you've brought to both of these, I mean, I think shows the, the value that both of them bring. And I mean, in some ways, I've even played into it. I mean, the show's called Coaching for Leaders, but there's as many times we're talking about management skills on the show as we are in leadership. Is there something that you've found that's been helpful when you've worked with organizations to get people into the mindset of the fact that both of these are, are skills that are necessary in most organizations? 
I think the more that that you can describe them without using kind of the extreme stereotypes, the leader, the wild man, you know, who who may have this great vision but is a wild man, <laughs> and the risk being that he takes everybody off a a cliff and the stereotype of the the manager being a control freak is about as exciting to be around as sitting and watching paint dry. You know, don't do that. Let's go back and look at good managers, good leaders, good people who who can do both. And what what do they do? And what does it achieve? I think in particular, over the last couple of decades, as people have realized, wait a minute, we don't have enough leadership out there. One of the things they've done is they've seen it as a zero-sum game. Therefore, to get more leadership, we got to get get less of this management. And once they've done that, they begin to say, we, we have far too much management. As a matter of fact, this management is, isn't very good. These guys... And, you know, you, you take your eye off them for two minutes and they've set 16 more rules, put into place some more control processes and metrics. You know, it's just madness. They stereotype it as bureaucracy in the sense that we use the word in a very negative sense. And you just got to stop, you know, throw the flag and say, just slow down, guys. Let's go back. I understand. Let's go back and see what these things really are, why they're so important, the function they play, and therefore logically why you need both. And when you do that, we have found, I have found as an individual, certainly my consultants have found this to a person, people will come around and say, you know, you can almost see the light bulb going on where people say, aha, okay, I get it now. One of the things that I found really interesting in the book is the discussion you have toward the end about the life cycle of the organization and how organizations tend to start with leadership and then move more into management over time. I was curious if you could tell us more about that, because I think that that's a really interesting thing that a lot of folks in our community are navigating. Well, and and that's a new one for me, too. I think about two years ago, we got that idea, and we actually made an animated, not an animated, a video of me with some animation on it to try to describe that. It, It occurred to me that all organizations, as you say, basically start as kind of a leadership system. You know, there aren't a bunch of policies and procedures and metrics and no organization chart. And if you look at what people do, it's not much management. It's a lot more grabbing, coming up with ideas in the broadest sense that come closer to visions, running with initiatives, helping provide the lead on the initiatives. But if they're successful, of course, they have to start making and shipping a product or a service and collecting money. And so whether they like it or not, they discover they have to start building something that is more of a management system mm-hmm. that does some, add some clarity about bosses and who reports to whom and what the jobs are and uh, putting the, the best policies into the, the policy manual so you're not reinventing the wheel inefficiently all the time and coming up with some metrics so people can be held accountable and you know when you're screwing up before the whole thing blows up. 
And the more successful you are, it's more that piece of the organization that is forced to grow. You have to add more people to the org chart. You have to create these silos that we kind of disparage so much, me too. Because as it turns out, that's a very efficient way to do th- do something. And it fits very much in with a whole managerial mindset. Now, for a, for a short period of time, everybody goes through a time, an era, which can be very short, in which they have both the original kind of entrepreneurial leadership system overlaid and connected closely to a management system where they are able to make and sell the stuff efficiently, and yet they haven't lost that capacity to look into the future, to innovate, to figure out how they're going to be different in two or three or five years if they're going to continue to win and actually execute that stuff. But the irony is the more successful they are, the one piece of the organization that has to grow is, this, uh, is that part that can actually make the stuff and ship the stuff and collect the money, which is the management part. And at a certain point, it just seems to always happen that the management part starts getting almost like annoyed with this little leftover leadership part that just you know absorbs a few resources, is unpredictable, gets in the way more than it helps, and it snuffs it out. And you end up with an organization that's a typical mature organization. Any remnants of the original entrepreneurial, networked-oriented, uh, low policy and procedure, leadership-driven piece is just gone. And, of course, it's fine as long as you own the market or you have something else that gives you great market power, like patents or a name. Coke is good, for one. But your capacity to do what you did at the beginning, that is to say, to come up with new stuff and then execute that new stuff, your capacity to innovate and and actually make a, a new future for you in light of the opportunities and hazards around you has just gone to zero. And what seems to happen then, naturally, is uh, uh, smart people who are running in place, I mean, they're not idiots, they start to look for ways to somehow overcome this incapacity of this big mature organization that they have, this management system, which they know they need. They feel it very much, especially every quarter when they have to report results to the investment community, and as we know, if they miss them by one penny, their stock can go down 10% these days. They start coming up with little mechanisms to try to be able to create changes to come up with new stuff like interdepartmental task forces and all kinds of names that people have developed over the years. And to some degree, done well, they can help But the challenge is, if the world starts moving faster and faster on them, those little augmentations by themselves are never enough because they're always controlled by the management system, which does not allow them to get big enough or powerful enough to do the job that is needed. And in some cases, it just leads to chaos. You know, at first you start off with one big strategic initiative, and if the firm is big enough, at some point nobody even knows how many 
there are out there. The CEO doesn't. And they're costing a lot of money. They overlap in ways that are unproductive. Some of the most talented people you got are on six of these committees. And they're just getting burnt out. And of course, it just doesn't get the job done. And where the future seems to be leading is toward not that, not a thousand of these little things that are that are controlled by a, a management system, but adding a lot more leadership in in a flavor that the organization once had when it was growing up, in which you've got the original kind of entrepreneurial, innovative leadership network kind of a piece operating hand in hand with a well-run management piece. And my guess right now is that is the future. It's the future because we know it's feasible. Almost every successful organization in its life cycle goes through that phase often very quickly and without noticing exactly how it's operating because everybody's just very busy and nobody has kind of pointed out how that time period operates. But we're going to move back to some form of that. You can't go back. We're going to move forward to some new form of that, that organizations kind of grow from where they're at right now into something that looks more like what they once had and lost and which provides them with solid management and a whole whole lot more leadership than they've got right now. Yeah, this part is so interesting to me because I think you've just described something which is so true for many people who are listening and thinking about their own organizations. And uh, I know you've written that you know we don't have this all figured out yet as far as you know how does an organization that's in that established management phase move back to being more leadership-oriented and bring in that entrepreneurial spirit. And I'm curious, even though we we haven't figured that out yet, what are some examples of organizations or even individual leaders that you've seen that have had some success at being able to do that, of being able to change some of the culture and the orientation of the organization to be more balanced uh, between leadership and management? Well, the cases that I know the best are the ones that I've actually watched happen up close. It wasn't just a matter of interviewing people about what happened two or three or five years ago, but I've watched happen, which means in our consulting work. So far, even though, again, we're still inventing as we go, they tend to have a number of common elements. Number one, the successful cases all seem to start when top management is by themselves or with help is orchestrated through a process of literally creating some clarity around what the big opportunities are in front of them. You can write this down, at least we found it in the consulting practice, on a a half a page. And it's something that helps align them around the future, but also it's something in which they find themselves, if it's done correctly, actually emotionally engaged. It's something they can all look at and nod because they created something, in a sense, that's one over their hearts and minds, not just minds. In the most successful cases we've seen, they have then taken that. We often put together, just uh, for, for lack of a better term, an urgency group, a bunch of volunteers who want to 
help create a sense of urgency around this kind of big opportunity statement throughout the organization and turn them loose with the goal of literally getting most of the organization, A, to understand this, B, excited about it, and C, to the point where they'll say, listen, this is important enough, this is cool enough that if you need help sometime later, call on me. Mm. Here's Here's my email address. Three, in I think all the successful cases, there's some mechanism made to open the door to not the, the few usual suspects for running initiatives, but for nearly anybody throughout the organization and at different levels to come forth and be a part of a kind of a, a group that helps drive this in conjunction with top management. We've even used uh, something, I mean, it sounds a little off the wall, as an application for being on what we call a guiding coalition. We'll have hundreds and hundreds of people sign up for 40 positions. And the application, just like, you know, a college application or anything else, helps you sort through not only the right mix of people across horizontally and vertically, but helps you sort through the right attitude and the right amount of energy and whether the person really has thought through Uh, How can I do my normal job at an A level or an A-plus level and participate in this other set of activities? In all the successful cases, we've let that group, within some broad parameters set by top management, themselves decide upon what the, the key strategic initiatives they should work on and what they're trying to achieve with those initiatives over the next six months or 12 months or 24 months. Again, with, with working with top management so that the guys on top don't think they're going off in some crazy direction, and if they do, they get a chance to say, hey, time out, guys, listen to this. In all the successful cases, people get some significant successes. Nowadays, we're using in 90 days. Or in other words, we ask them to set up a couple of initiatives, and we, and we have a process for doing it, in which they pick some area that uh, top management says, yeah, this is, this is uh, we understand why this is strategically important, of kind of sorting out the future and making it happen. And uh, they come up with what they'd like to do and a metric they're going to be uh, measured by, but they design the metric. And they're given somebody to help, you know, kind of organize them in a set of principles and ground rules. And they go off and work on it. They check in at 30 days with, and at uh, 60 days. And it is amazing how successful and how much it tends to surprise senior management what a group of people would, who always include a bunch of folks that senior management has never heard of before never met. What they can get done if the process is kind of handled right in 90 days. This alongside some initiatives that are obviously going to take a lot longer than than that just because of the, the nature of them. In all the successful cases, people learn to celebrate their successes. That sounds kind of, you know, no big deal, but the reality is organizations are not great uh, and subgroups are not great. At once they've achieving something, 
actually, you know, popping out the, the, the champagne and having a, a piece of cake or something like that. But celebration is important, I think, because that is feeding our emotions, which is a key piece of this whole thing. It's not just thinking. It's not just business cases. It's not just PowerPoint slides. A whole lot of this is the other side of the brain. And in all the successful cases, the kind of the management system and these this new set of volunteers all organized around a core group of people who are organizing it and providing leadership, 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 work close enough together that they understand what each side is doing. They learn to appreciate each other so that the thing, when it starts growing up, starts to solidify and become basically a new way of running an organization. Well, I'm I'm really interested about that because I mean I love by the way I mean you've talked for years about creating a guiding coalition and creating urgency, uh, but just the process of going through and creating an application and, and formalizing that and, and getting people to opt in. I mean it's just it's a really neat way to approach it from a structural standpoint. And I think one of the other areas that people are probably wondering listening to uh, us talk is. We do have folks that are in organizations who listen, who are very much in that management zone and are established organizations. And we also have a lot of folks who are in the small to medium-sized businesses who I know are thinking about this model and thinking, you know, we're starting, maybe we're at that entrepreneurial stage right now, and maybe we're even have a pretty good balance between leadership and management today, but we see ourselves going toward being more bureaucratic. Yep. And I think a lot of people recognize that that's not something they necessarily want to do, but it's, it's sort of like the organization <laughs> culturally just sort of starts creating that if you're not careful. Uh, I'm curious, what are some of the things that leaders in that space right now, what are some of the, pre- I don't know, preventative is the right word, but proactive maybe is a better word, things that can be done now to start to keep that good balance within the organization? No, I think it's a great question, and I think it all starts with some clarity in your own head of what you're trying to keep. I mean, what is it that you're trying to build that you may have right now, and the name of the game is to hold on to it as you get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and then help other people to understand that, too. So you start, in a sense, creating a joint vision, if you will, of how you guys are going to operate and why it makes sense, why it's just not some boss's arbitrary, you know, the the latest book he read that's being imposed on us, but it really does make sense. And then to some minimum degree, to start formalizing it in the way we talk, and in the way we um, have our orientation to new employees, and well, ultimately, then in the way we operate. There are a number of typical problems. So you've got an entrepreneur. He's been very successful. He's, he's hit this stage, but he can't, just like you were saying a minute ago, he can see it. He can see this bureaucracy, and those, it's probably the way he thinks, growing and growing, killing the very uh, thing that made them great in the first place. And so he starts to negative stereotype the bureaucracy, tries to beat it back. So all the guys on the management side are feeling put down and belittled. You know, wait a minute, I'm doing my job and I think I'm doing a great job. And the boss doesn't seem to appreciate that. Well, you, you can imagine where that leads. 
either trying to stop it, which is impossible, this kind of flow, unless you have clarity about what you're trying to hold on to and then help everybody to see, no, this is the way we're going to run things. And it has a logic behind it. There's not, it's just not, you know, the boss's dream he had one night. There's a logic behind how this is going to make us a world-class organization. Let's all learn that logic and the way we can work together. Let's teach new people about it, and that will work. The number of organizations that are doing that right now, I think, is literally you know, one in a thousand. And I don't say that in a pessimistic sense. It's not like the other 999 are stupid. They just haven't been introduced to these ideas yet. And when they are introduced to these ideas, I think we're going to see a lot of smart people. The light bulb will go on and they will find ways that I don't even know of right now as they hit this stage when they're going from an entrepreneurial to a more mature organization to kind of throw up the flag and start talking to each other and teaching each other how to not let something that is so important slip away, hold on to it as they grow, and as a result, be able to be incredibly reliable and efficient in the short term, incredibly fast, agile, and innovative for the future, and to win, win, win. I was talking with our one of our mastermind groups uh, last night, John, and mentioned that I was going to be speaking with you today, and several people are familiar with your book. One of our mastermind members, you know, by the way, uh, Heather Balserick, we were talking about what questions that I should ask you, and Chris, one of our members, is familiar with your work and mentioned that the pace of change in today's economy and workplace really seems to be a lot speedier. And he was wondering, are there differences in the way that you think about change in organizations now than maybe you thought about 10, 15, 20 years ago as far as how organizations navigate change? Well, first of all, it all starts with objectively, on measures we can put together, the world is changing faster. And every once in a while, it really speeds up, and that's what we usually call turbulence. And you can find this on all kinds of measures. The curves all kind of go up exponentially. Uh, Technological measures like number of patents filed uh, in the U.S. Patent Office or the amount of disk storage that will fit onto a particular uh, piece of geography or international measures, global integration measures, like simply the, the amount of data that's flowing around the world across country boundaries each and every day. And that has big implications. What I was finding uh, was kind of the A-plus way to do things 20 years ago still works for a single specific challenge you're facing. But in this world that is working, that is moving faster and faster, it's no longer good to have this fantastic way to create and execute some major strategic initiative and have it over in the executive closet and uh, every once in a while kind of go over and and pull it out, you know, put all the pieces on the table, get the team around to each uh, 
pick up their piece and go do their thing. And then once you've achieved a significant execution of some new strategy, put it all back in its little package and put it back in the executive closet, you need a system that can help that thing run constantly. That's what more change more often from more different directions has created. And what that means operationally also is the number of people on a regular basis that have to be involved with the side that is looking for opportunities, jumping on opportunities, figuring out how to best exploit opportunities, and then executing simply has to be a lot more than it was in the most successful change cases 20 years ago. I heard just the other day, somebody told a little story. I don't know if you've heard this before, Dave. You got a small group of guys in a room and they're trying to figure out who should attend some meeting. And one of them says, it's gotta be all the people in such and such department. And so he says, it's only eight of them. It's not a you know big group. And another guy says, yeah, that's probably true, but you've got to include these two other people, too, because they're interconnected, blah, 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 blah. And another guy says, yeah, but, you know, so we're up to 10. You've got to include the two guys over in logistics because it's connected to, and everybody kind of nods. And one guy, looking a little bit forlorn, says, you know, there are times in life that you can get a whole lot more done if it's just two people in a room and everybody kind of looks knowingly at this guy and sighs and kind of half nods. And then one of them though speaks up and says, well, yeah, two people in a room is great unless you have to move a piano. Yeah. And what we're getting in a sense these days is just this constant stream of challenges that are being thrown at us that are more like moving a piano. And one of the big differences today, therefore, versus 10 or 20 years ago is the sheer number of people who have to, at some point, help out. Not just take orders, but literally help provide a little leadership on something. And we have found this in the consulting practice at Cotter International, where people in the most unlikely positions from the point of view of senior management if you create the right conditions, we'll step forward and we'll do things that will leave your mouth open. A third shift factory worker. It happens, it needs to happen, and it probably is going to even go more in that direction as the world speeds up more. Well, speaking of change, one of the things Heather was wondering about is the all the conversation and dialogue that's happened over the last decade on millennials and coming into the workplace and how millennials approach their work differently. And one of the things we were wondering about, too, is how do you see that as far as how organizations navigate change and, and handle this dynamic of leadership and management? Are there things that leaders should be doing differently these days in working with the new generation of employees, or is it similar things that you've seen throughout the generations of the workforce? Well, the most honest answer to that is I'm not 100% sure. But what we have found, and I don't know if it's more uh, related to millennials or it's more related to just young people, 
Not sure. So what we have found is when you kind of open the gate and allow people, as long as they do their regular job, to kind of step in and work with some of these broader strategic innovative issues, there are at least a sizable group of young people who will just rush through that gate, rush through it. And if you talk to them afterwards and say, A, why did you rush through it? And B, what was your experience like? What they will say is, you know, I'm not knocking my job, but my job has real boundaries around it. And this is more exciting, it's bigger, and it just feels more meaningful. It feels like I'm, I'm really making a difference, and I want to make a difference. So, now, is that just a, a characteristic of more of youth, millennials, or something else? It is amazing how often we have found, though, regardless of age, people who have really got caught up and a, a, a kind of this new way of operating that, that really has high leadership, high management, and kind of a dual system. People who've got caught up in this, how often when we talk to them a couple of years into it, they will say things that are just a little bit hard to believe. We've had people say, my work on these initiatives have been the most exciting time in my professional career. We have people who literally, when they, when they go off of one of these central groups, like the, what I call a guiding coalition, at their last meeting will be in tears. They're partly tears of joy of what they've been able to achieve and partly tears of having to, to break up with this group mm-hmm. and the work that they're doing. Now, to some degree, that's just being human, I know. And to some degree, it's youth. And I have a funny feeling that to some degree, it's also the millenniums. Well, John, I am so grateful for the work that you've brought to all of us over the years in how to navigate leadership and change. You have taken a concept that uh, for many, many years was very nebulous and and was very hard for many leaders to navigate. And you've created frameworks and systems and models for us that have been really helpful as, as starting points for how to really approach change in a very productive and a healthy way. And I'm just grateful for all your work. And I appreciate you taking the time to share your wisdom with us and your thinking and how the models evolved over the years. And, and thanks for, for all you've done. You're more than welcome. Dr. John Cotter is the author of the new book, That's Not How We Do It Here, a story about how organizations rise and fall and can rise again. John, thanks again. Thank you again, John. And also a special thank you to Heather Balserek, one of our mastermind members who put me in touch with John. Thank you, Heather. You are a cool cat. So appreciate it. And if you have a comment or question about today's episode, or maybe just want to join the conversation, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash 249. And as always, if you have a general question for the show, you can go to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. We do a monthly Q&A show the first Monday of the month. We open it up to 
everyone for questions and Bonnie and I get together and respond to your questions. So uh, take a moment to go there if you have a question you'd like us to consider. And if you're not already subscribed to the show, please do so. The show airs every Monday. Just search for Coaching for Leaders on iTunes or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. And one final note before I let you go, if you haven't already joined the Weekly Leadership Guide, it is delivered to your inbox every Wednesday and includes my thoughts and recommendations on the best articles, podcasts, videos, books, things that I've seen in the media over the last week that I know will help you support your development between the shows. And it includes a brief overview and a link to the full weekly show notes. If you listen on the go like me, it will help you in getting even more value from the episodes. And you can subscribe to that at Coaching for Leaders dot com slash subscribe. And as a bonus, when you join the weekly leadership guide, you'll get instant access to my reader's guide that lists the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others and brief summaries from me on the value of each one of those books. And one of those books is John Cotter's, one of the earlier books, Leading Change. It's a great read in addition to his current book. That's an 11-page reader's guide and nine-minute video on all those book recommendations. You can get access to all of that at coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And a big thank you this week to the person named Teeps22. Hey, that was a wonderful review you left on iTunes. Thank you so much for the kind words. I'm so grateful. Uh, They mentioned that one of their recent favorite episodes was the one with David Marquet on talking about turning the ship around. That was one of my favorites too. Thank you so much for the kind message. If you'd like to leave a review on iTunes and as well, go to coachingforleaders.com slash iTunes. It's a great way to support the show and the community. Thank you so much. Have a fabulous week and I look forward to speaking with you again next Monday. Take care.